Welcome back to another episode of Replicons, where this week, uh, myself, Nami, Anton, and Olga will be discussing methodology over metrics. Current scientific standards are a disservice to patients and society. So kind of right off the bat, that title is quite an accusation. I guess, uh, what do you guys think of the paper? Just top level thoughts. It was kind of cute. I mean, our background is three of us are from psychology, and this paper is about the crisis in, you know, in health research. For us, it already happened, right? For some reason, uh, you know, medical research is uh, is regarded as more strict, rigorous science compared to psychology. So when when you guys get accused that hey, your methods are not ideal, you kind of shrug it like okay you know we can do double blind placebo control that's it you know we are fine we don't need to do anything else that's a pinnacle of research right there uh however in you know in psychology it's not that way and you know a lot of people in the area itself has reacted quite dramatically to the what was the year of the reproducibility project like 2010 Five. Uh, some people say 2009 is the pinnacle point because of the uh, false positive psychology paper thing. Mm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So since then, we have kind of been on the, I wouldn't say defensive, but in a personal growth stage of psychology where we, you know, are pushing all the, you know, reproducibility projects, open science and whatnot. And if you look into it, a lot of the open science initiatives actually come from either past or current psychology researchers just because they're traumatized by this crisis the most, arguably the most. And so it was kind of nice reading this article. And, you know, it's it, it appeared to me as if you guys have all the same issues and you're just starting tackling them. So it, I think it would be really nice if we, you know, if you, we all together, you know, integrate into a larger framework where you can, as a field, get some tips and tricks from psychology because we have just, you know, just started doing the same process. And, you know, we, we have learned a lot of the, you know, underwater rocks of the process. Yeah, totally. I mean, it is kind of nuts how um, I, I think in general, a lot of medical research, like, there's an air of superiority to it where people think like they can't possibly be wrong because they've been studying this stuff for like such a long time. And I think it's, it's pretty apparent when you look at things objectively that uh, it's not done well in a way that you can find truths in a replicatable fashion. Um, even comparing it to psychology, I think like one of the huge problems here is just the pure amount of money that's spent on biomedical research. Like there's a paper that came out in, I think it was 2004 uh, in The Lancet, where they did a series of like five separate papers about uh, waste in biomedical research. And the author projected, and this is like a controversial figure, but that like 85% of all funding is wasted because like in theory, 50% of papers can't be uh, reproduced. Like it's, I think they said like 30% don't have like the methodological detail to allow for reproduction. Um, the findings aren't necessarily like communicated in a way where like all the data is shared and like others are able to actually look into things. 
And when you look at all of the money spent on biomedical research in the world, e even just the US, I think it's something like $250 billion a year. And so like 85% of that is like, <laughs> you could fund a lot of scientists with that. So yeah, I think, uh, I think it's encouraging that more people are taking this seriously enough to actually publish papers and hopefully we'll catch up to you guys in the next like 25 years or so. We're, we're in like the preteen stage. Like we're not self-aware yet. You know, <laughs> you guys are like teenagers getting there, but you know, we're still not quite at that point. Yeah, I think there is even a difference within psychology right now. For example, uh, areas that were hit the most by the reproducibility crisis, like social psych, and maybe cognitive psych that were hit, that weren't hit bad enough, but they are still there. Uh, those areas are kind of like doing a lot in order to improve the situation. And if you look at health psychology or like organizational psychology, who for some reason just wasn't really uh, represented in the uh, big reproducibility research, they are still unaware. And you still can see like uh, people not, you know, reporting effect sizes, for example, in papers in uh, health psychology, which is for social psychology right now is just unbelievable. You can't go through peer review without doing that. I mean, it makes sense, right? And I think that is a good prelude for our discussion because in many cases, the issues we're going to discuss, the solution to them is you have to shoot yourself in the leg. Like you have to be more humble about your research. You have to be, your research has to be a little bit more boring than it is currently. You have to be more meticulous about your stuff. And so unless you are kind of, shamed into submission by the society into this role, who would do that, right? No one would do that. You only improve if you, there is a dire necessity for improvement. So I think just to set the stage a little bit um, for listeners, looking at the um, statement, current scientific standards are disservice to patients and society. Um, two parts of that, current scientific standards what do you guys think the authors mean by that phrase? And then uh, what are the disservices that are actually happening to patients and society? Well, it's interesting that you ask, right? because I think the disservice here is twofold. Uh, first of all, the, the, you know, the findings that we can publish can be blatantly misleading right not not even because we are you know some evil mastermind that, that you know tries to uh, ruin science and medicine for humanity but we did a poor job right we found something that was due to chance and there was a you know it was poorly controlled and there was other factor we did, didn't figure out and now we just publish it and now people are misled right they in in a way their scientific advances are are stopped in, in certain points, right? They, they no longer think that this can be found or discovered, right? Because it has already been tested and this is the outcome of it. And that's, you know, that's, that's an obvious negative impact. 
right? Because you can come as a patient to a doctor and they will prescribe you an incorrect, harmful medicine, right? That's, I think that's the most obvious outcome. And the second one, I think it's uh, less direct for the patients, but it, think about it, creating any new scientific knowledge inevitably creates noise and we're just multiplying information out there so even if it's not directly misleading but it's kind of a not blank but empty-ish no you know no noise in the sea of the new findings right because it wasn't it wasn't coherent enough it wasn't uh, strict enough it's kind of meh right and even if it's not harmful by itself someone will read it someone will spend time trying to get into it and uh but you know by itself it might be not not bad not not terrible but think about it imagine a thousand scientists spent two hours reading your article and they learned absolutely nothing they just got tired you just stole 2k high quality hours from the humanity that could have been spent doing something else right so you clutter the the field you clutter the you know the the, the knowledge base of the science what do you guys think they also talk about participants so uh it's kind of this irb thing that sometimes also evaluates so irb is how what, what institution review board yes so basically it's uh, an organization that every university and other uh, institutions that does research is supposed to have and basically they evaluate your research plan to figure out how ethical it is how well participants are being treated compensated blah 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 and one of the criteria is they don't really look at me me methodology, but they do look at uh, does it worth time and risk of participants. So if we do some kind of like poorly controlled research that uh, probably will produce some kind of you know bullshit on the other end. It just doesn't worth participants' time and uh, potential risks that they can experience because they're, you know, live people and we are subscri subscribing them for, to unnecessary procedures without uh, any good outcomes for society and these participants as well. I'm just tax dollar in general, right? So. The good example of this, I was thinking about actually a good example of this neutral study that, you know, just cluttering the field I'm talking about. It would be like a good study, but with very poorly described, you know, method section. And like Patrick mentioned in the past, before, it, it just means can't be reproduced, right? We don't, we literally don't even know what to do to figure out if it was right or wrong, if, it, if it's a thing even. So... Right now, it's kind of, we don't know. It's just, you know, food for thought <laughs> at best, right? But if you, if you're 
talking about from the position of the money spent and you know 250 billion per year was it in just us alone yeah that's just the us on so just biomedical not physics or like yes, that's a lot of money Ima imagine how much of those are you know are spent doing literally nothing like conducting more and more research that doesn't reproduce you're repeating the same mistakes over and over again nothing is happening you, you know, no advances that's almost stealing i imagine in some of the countries uh, around the globe i imagine there is at least one where you can actually get in jail for that and you know maybe rightly so I want to say not only stalling the progress, right? Because we're talking about research waste and like some things are like, as you said, like empty and that's kind of stealing time from researchers. But we have to also look at this hazardous waste that uh, builds onto these false positive findings, false positive theories. And you know, what happens like next, like if you find something, people will be looking for it. People will be hacking for it. People have going device to find it. So next study will find it again. And all the other failed quote unquote studies will be, you know, you won't see them again. So that's um, progress, but or retardation, I think, uh, in, but in the wrong direction because you're accumulating evidence to something that's not real. And that's a scary way to think about that. Yeah, and on top of everything, oftentimes, if it's human research, especially like social science research, oftentimes findings do kind of like marginalize, marginalize people even more. Like, for example, so for example, there was a lot of uh, recent studies on COVID-19 and obesity, which were kind of all over the place, just stigmatizing people who are overweight in obese through and through without thinking about stigmatization. And like, I at least I didn't see studies that would add into account uh, a lot of kind of social things that are proven and that are going on in the interactions of obese people and healthcare organizations which is kind of scary and kind of an additional disservice to people who we are studying, right? We are asking these people to be our participants in the name of the science, and then we are marginalizing them for that. Yeah, totally. So, so just to kind of repeat those points back, when it comes to the disservice to patients and society that's happening, it sounds like we're wasting researcher time and attention with studies that aren't super meaningful, potentially. Uh, we're wasting money. We're potentially putting uh, research subjects in danger if they're uh, part of a protocol that wasn't totally thought through. And then kind of like the second order societal impacts of like coming out with like a finding where maybe the results aren't totally true, but it causes like stigmatization or actually some kind of social change. Um, so, so then like those seem pretty massive to me, like a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of like uh, emotions that are wasted when they don't need to be. What, uh, what do you think the authors mean by the current scientific standards that then cause these downstream results? I think it would be a good time to actually go through, through them one by one. And, uh, you know, I think it would be easier to think about them as 
a societal mindset like what what is a good acceptable normal thing to do and how to feel about your research and we'll go through those and and you will notice uh, that a lot of them are actually they don't exist on the level of one particular researcher right it's the expectation maybe maybe it's about the institutions maybe it's about maybe it's about the uh the publishers the journals it's just kind of like stuff surrounding your career and seemingly you know individual researchers don't really have power over it however that's going to be our first list and then we'll go through the second list of what specific behaviors these researchers are i, I want to say forced into let's say forced into to you know to adapt to this perverse reality let's say right so how do you play this game to become a successful uh, you know researcher with great career right uh do you want me to go through them i think uh like for one second it would be helpful because some people may be listening and not totally familiar with how science is judged and rewarded but when you're playing the scientific game like what does that entail well, uh, I think, okay, I, actually, I think the very first uh, point here is, you know, is a great demonstration of what the, you know, the scientific career is looking like. So they, the first issue that they highlight is the, uh, that research uh, is more focused on quantity as opposed to quality these days. And why? And the reason is that, you know, when you're building your resume, or something uh it is very often the case that people who are judging you are not actually going to look in details at your you know main research they will uh especially if it's a process that maybe a recruitment and mass right if 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 the university is considering hiring one one of the few dozens of candidates it's impossible to read every single article that they have, right? And inevitably, they rely on some sort of quantification of their achievements. For example, you know, number of citations, number of papers, number of papers where you first offer the H index, which is the number of publications you have with an with at least as much citations as the total number of publications uh yeah and you know all sorts of other quantifiable but not very fair metrics you know and so this incentivizes you sometimes to maybe publish two bad articles instead of publishing one good article right one good article will take forever will yield you less uh profit what do you think? Well, what success means in science, right? <laughs> I mean, that's there are individual definitions to that. But as a society, I think we decided that success in science means the number of publications in high impact journals and maybe citations, possibly. That's the incentive structure that we have. And that's what the selection committees or, the, uh, or hiring committee uh, or like a grant or fellowship award committee care about in general there are little efforts that happening that they try to kind of like compensate that but in general i think as a society uh, we have a norm for that and that's why 
read publications, read another publication. You the longer the CV, the better. Yeah. And so, actually, so I, I have a yeah. question for, for you guys. How do you feel this? Have you felt this pressure in your own individual academic careers to publish as much as you can, get as many citations as you can? And like, how does that actually manifest itself? Like, not necessarily in your day to day, but during your PhD? How do you kind of consider these pressures? I don't think I had a day in my PhD life when I didn't have this pressure. Like, uh, you constantly worried about your next employment potential. And it's very hard to understand what do you need to, to be competitive, right? The only one very clear kind of uh, indication is that you have to publish as much as possible. Yeah. So that's, that's basically only one criteria you can go for. That, you know, they, they call it publish or perish for a reason, right? Uh, yeah, that, you know, in many cases, in many students I talk to, this mentality creates this world where you don't really have days off, right? If you're sick for a week, that just doesn't mean you have that it's a break. It just means that the week after that, you'll have to work twice as hard to get back to the pace that you were before. And no one really knows exactly what are the criteria. Uh, like Nami said, you know, publishing in the high tier outlets can be, you know, viable solution. And actually, as we go through the list, you will soon realize that you would think better journals more like more popular journals equals your quality of your study needs to be higher and nah, 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 nah. no there are other ways to get into high tier journals and we will talk about them later uh but yeah yeah i think so i actually saw a study last week that said that um papers that are highly cited are less likely to replicate because they normally have like uh, like bigger findings. So people are like, oh, this is cool. I'll cite it. You know, this is a, mm -hmm. a big thing that's happened here. But um, yeah, the bigger findings, less likely to have the data required for it actually to be real. So it is a weird kind of like uh, negative feedback loop where uh, we're just kind of like pushing worse science in order to get further along in someone's career. Yeah, the, yeah. You're, go ahead. Yeah, so basically all this pressure, publish or perish, uh, which starts from grad school, maybe even since undergrad for some people who want to get into grad school at some point, kind of creates this culture of fast science as opposed to slow science. So there are, for example, some people who are recently started to advocate for slowing down the science and uh, for example, deliberately trying not to uh, like to create a culture where we deliberately not publish papers in PhD programs, right? Because PhD program is not for publishing as much as possible. It's for learning how to publish things, learning how to create experiments. And then maybe you can publish when you learn how to do that. Uh, it's interesting, right? Because like, Brian in research hub, his motto is accelerating science, right? But I think I don't think it's the same 
it's the same situation, right? The COVID has indeed shown us that, you know, if you really think about it and you're really motivated, you can do high quality science fast, right? If, if, if the surrounding structures, the surrounding institutions lend you a help. So basically, if, if the rest of society helps science, science can be really fast. But it's not the, as the same as saying you have to be, you know, you have to be fast about everything in academia, right? Your, your, your training must be long, meticulous, and well-paced, right? You can't rush it. Uh, however, other things, you know, if you want to accelerate science, you know, hire more people for your IRB, right? Maybe they will, it will take them faster to review your protocol and get back to you. You know, give people more funding and streamline the recruitment process. Maybe, uh, you know, come up with more funding where you can recruit people, not just from your undergrad pool. Things of that nature, they can definitely speed up the science without sacrificing the, uh, the quality. And one of the points that they mention in the article at the very end is they, like realistically, maybe every single lab in, you know, in, at least in, in, in medical science, needs to have their own hired statistician or, and or uh, research design advisor, right? Yeah, hire those people in. They're going to help you way faster than you would have figured it out by yourself. So the, I think these are the ways to keep it both fast and high quality. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. Although the one issue with that is the scarcity of resources. So uh, good quality COVID uh, research. There was not a lot of good quality COVID research. And the ones that were good quality, we kind of like just combusted most of our money into COVID research in recent years. And usually you just don't have money <laughs> or don't have a lot of it to hire a statistician, to hire a person who will do research design for you, right? So maybe we can at least uh, make things slower right and uh, maybe we when we evaluate things we can even uh, see that if person uh, publishes i don't know eight papers per year we can't just uh, expect that this person made a decent contribution into these papers or these papers are high quality yeah, to, to comment on the idea of slow science, um, stealing this from the Wikipedia publisher Parish, but I've heard this from a few like older famous scientists. Um, Niels Bohr, he came up with like one of the structures of the atom and then the Higgs uh, boson. I guess this is Peter Higgs, actually. Mm -hmm. um, he was quoted in 2013 saying that uh, today I wouldn't get an academic job. It's as simple as that. I don't think I would be regarded as productive enough. I think it took him like 10 years to come up with one paper that described the Higgs boson, which like, you know, you would be like fired, right? Like if you're a academic professor, you don't get a publication for like five or six years, people would be like, hey, what are you doing? You know, like, so yeah, just a um, 
I think it's interesting in that the competition for resources, like there's such a large supply of people who want to do science, like such a small supply of funding for those people that it's made the environment hyper competitive since like the nineties kind of like facilitating this move towards like judging purely on like uh, numbers of publications and citations, which has all this downstream like problematic effects. I also kind of think of this like, um, maybe not the best analogy, but uh, with like companies, they're incentivized to maximize quarterly profits. So mm-hmm. it's like, you need to like think short term, like, hey, what am I gonna do for this next board meeting, you know, coming up in three months, how am I gonna prove that I'm doing my job well so that way I don't get fired. And I think like uh, PIs kind of have that same mentality to a certain degree where it's like, I need to be publishing, you know, on an annual basis, like a couple papers that get, you know, cited well coming out of my lab or else, you know, the powers that be will be like, hey, you know, maybe we could find someone else to fill this spot. Yeah. yeah and mm-hmm. th- they talk about how it leads to this adverse selection potentially, because people who want to do some kind of slow science deliberately, mindfully, they just don't produce enough to be competitive on the market, which is kind of sad. So I want to drill down into that idea one second, like competitive on the market. What does that mean? Is that like hiring committees for like academic professorships? Is it tenure? Is it grants? Like who, who's deciding? Yeah, it's basically everything. So it's grants, it's uh, postdoc, even positions, tenured positions, every position you get, even after just undergrad, because even getting into the grad school is a competitive process. You're judged on every step of the way. You're judged when you go from when you go from high school to undergrad, from undergrad to to masters, from masters to PhD, from PhD to postdoc, from postdoc to that this this moment is you you need to be super lucky to land uh, a tenure track position or become an adjunct forever, something like this. And then you're judged again when you are considered for the tenure track. And finally enough, like you mentioned the story before that, you know, some research can take a decade, right? Wasn't this the case for Darwin? How long did he work on his thing? Like 15 years or something? And he traveled, he lived in the jungle in the process. No way he would land a job, uh, you know, in today's environment. And that's not great. Like you said, we have short-term goals now. And ironically, that's what the tenure is supposed to be for, to Mm -hmm. relax, walk around, think slow, big thoughts, and come back 10 years later and produce the work of your life. Now, the problem is... (laughs) It comes way too late. You are done with your career by the time you get tenure, right? So you are so tired and so, you know, in in the habit of already obeying the existing system. It's you know, it honestly, it's very unlikely you'll take a long sabbatical and think big thoughts at this point. Yeah. Also, the only one thing that was required from Darwin is ability to write things, read and write, basically. Uh, the things that are required from uh, 
modern psychology researcher are oftentimes include somewhat developed skills of coding, knowing sophisticated, uh, very often uh, st statistical analysis and things like this. So it's also just things that we are spending our time on and it's also like very necessary marketable skills we supposed to get but again of course we don't we, we, we can just you know quit everything and go and learn how to code right for the five years so again our skills are sometimes not at the uh not, not meet expectations of what we want them to be for like producing good quality of science especially when we talk about statistical skills right so it's been like maybe last 10 years when we realized that you know people don't know stats people don't know how to do statistical analysis yet because it's way it it it, it takes my, much more rigorous training and much more years of rigorous training to figure out how to actually do statistical analysis without, you know, p-hacking mm. <laughs> and just understanding why p-hacking is, is bad. That's what they say in the end of the article. Interestingly enough, you know, medical, medical professionals are way, 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 way better funded than psychology. So we could definitely notice this in the discourse, in the article. They basically say, hey, no way we as you know, an average researcher can master statistics and perfect research design. Let's just hire statisticians. That's what they say in the article, right? Meanwhile, in psychology, oh, hey guys, there is this new trend that you're supposed to know this new technique that's gonna help you improve the you know, decrease the false positive rate by 2%, everyone needs to know it. <laughs> Go learn it. You're by yeah. yourself and implement it in every single thing you do with no extra pay. And, you know, you still have 24 hours a day. Yeah, and we also expect you to publish two papers a year starting your first year at PhD where you have no idea how statistics works. But that's, okay, that's... Uh... Yeah, that actually was one of the other points that they're making that there is a methodological illiteracy, right? So mm -hmm. an average researcher doesn't really know what they're what they're dealing with. You know, the statistics can be this rabbit hole with layers of understanding that you, you need to understand on a pretty surface level to just press the buttons in your you know in in, in one of the software programs that you're using to run the analysis, but then inevitably you run into issues caused by your misunderstanding, right? You use the technique you're not supposed to use. You uh, maybe Im implemented some of the assumptions you didn't really plan to uh, make, things of that nature. And statistical packages are, they're designed to be research question agnostic. They don't know what these numbers are, right? So if you input in, let's say, a structural equation model that, you know, the broken leg leads to pain, it will absolutely treat it the same way as pain leads to broken leg. It doesn't know, right? So it's up to you to understand what is going on and enter, provide uh, 
meaningful, correct input for the statistical model. Yeah. So I think the you know people make car analogy for uh, you know the driver and car and engineer analogy for researchers like um, researchers know how to drive a car, which means they know how to run a statistical analysis like less importance on uh, SPSS or something like that, but they don't know what the underlying analysis are, are. And I think this article highlights that there are different levels of drivers, right? Like there are drivers who have clean record, they can drive very well, but there are also drivers who are just like constantly bumping onto the road, maybe hazardous, right? And it's very incompetent. And these are drivers that need to be educated um, for what they're doing actually, and what actually is happening. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great point. We need more competent drivers. And then we can also have people who can talk to the engineers of the cars, right? So I'm closer to uh, what's the actual like uh, workings of the uh, statistics are. So yeah, that's a good direction. But still, we still need uh, like uh, experts in statistics and um, just need to decentralize. <laughs> Again, the word is decentralized. Uh, PI doing everything, those days are gone. <laughs> we just need uh, some special specialized team of people who are driving projects. Yeah, that's so to play devil's advocate for one second, um, in theory, like, shouldn't the IRB do this, right, in order to review the methodology of a study? And uh, if, in theory, that's supposed to be the control check, why is that failing? No, for the, for the IRB, you're providing a very um, simplified explanation of what's going to happen, right? Because the IRBs involve members, I think they must involve a member of the community so by definition yeah. a person who has no idea what's up right they are just a person from the streets so they no way they will be able to look at the procedure and be like yeah that's enough to replicate i guess yeah i guess uh they don't really look at like method methodological uh quality of the paper beyond just understanding does it worth doing at all like if we are doing a paper on uh do people break their bones when they fall from uh you know the roof it doesn't seem like a good idea because that's a high risk for participants potentially and we probably can guess that people do break their bones right so this is the example of something that would be rejected by IRB for methodological reasons. But they don't really look into the deep understanding of uh, does this look like something that will replicate or does it look like something that is methodologically solid? Do we use uh, appropriate statistical analysis, for example, or do we control our our, our uh, intervention very well? Yeah, I yeah. mean, Patrick, I think you raise a great point about the institutions trying to do something about this. And I agree, like IRB right now is primary concern or purely maybe concern about participant safety um, and protection, which is a great thing, but we need something else. Maybe research office, which is like a broader department who hosts IRB, can provide services for researchers. Um, 
to design better studies, to provide statistical analysis. There are some institutions providing those services out there. Um, but, you know, usual institutions, like most, most institutions will say, oh, we don't have funding and things like that. I don't know, <laughs> like, it's, if it's a real thing, real lack of money, or just uh, uh, pure laziness, uh, negligence about these issues. Um, but we should be asking these questions about how, what institutions can do in this context. I can't believe we've been talking for this much and we have not bashed the publishers yet. But I think the next three uh, points in their list are all related to publishers. They are arguing that, you know, that we as researchers are incentivized to pursue novel or catchy findings. And just because there is a huge pressure, you know, you know how I mentioned in the, in the beginning that there are other ways to get published in high-tier journals? Well, let me tell you, first of all, it has to be novel and must sound catchy to like an average, average person on the street, right? N notice that I have not mentioned any of the you know, scientific value. It just has to be catchy, it has to be popular, it has to be has to have potential to you know go go viral on Twitter or something, right? Uh, so that's catchy. The peer review process, you know, you're describing how there should be a place where you know people can get help with the uh, methodology and whatever. That's literally supposed to be peer review in the ideal world, right? So you are supposed to get constructive feedback from you know your peers that you might implement to make your study better and more methodologically sound before publishing it. And in the meanwhile, that's not at all what peer review is. Peer review is basically like just gatekeeping, right? They're not being paid, they're overworked. And a lot of my colleagues actually admit that they are kind of incentivized to do a bad job, right? Because it takes less time and if you do a bad job, the journal is less likely to reach out to you and shame you into uh, doing another review for them, right? You, you did a bad job once, they're not going to reach out to you. You can focus on your own work. So that's terrible. <laughs> so I right? think this is super interesting because like in theory, like ideally on the front end, like to an IRB or like the research office, there'd be some kind of criticism to a methodology to make sure that like before the research happened, it was high quality. But so that doesn't exist for whatever reason. But in theory, another way you could make sure that happened was on the back end if high quality journals only published papers that had sound methodology. So you would think like if you were nature or science or one of these high impact journals, you would wanna make sure that all of the papers that you publish can be reproduced and are of high quality. But like you think about journals, right? Like what are their business models? Do they make more money or less money from ensuring that the papers that they publish are of high quality? And, and what, what incentives are these journals, do they have influencing them to accept what kinds of papers. And that, that's where I always think like, you know, it's it's sad. One of the the main negative thing that I think the internet's done is the rise of like clickbait, where like it's much more profitable to share content that um, seems awesome and is like overstating of like 
findings basically because you can drive traffic and clicks and citations when really like high quality journalism or like scientific reporting um you're gonna end up making less money and then like in our current system these for-profit journals you know the leadership will be replaced with somebody who will you know maximize revenues instead of necessarily high quality science mm -hmm. and another point the offers make is transparency which also goes against the most modern journals right the the word count itself the preference uh, towards certain uh not necessarily standardized guidelines for how to write an article like for example can you guess what is the section that goes after introduction in nature family journals results results exactly the methods are pushed into the supplementary materials i don't even know if they're seriously reviewed or something but that's that just shows shows the values right shows the values of what is the actual content that must be you know read and consumed as a priority is that a recent thing i've noticed that a lot more like in the last six months where it's like like the methods just aren't there it takes me a while to find them yeah it, like it's it's obnoxious it's you know you, you just toss methods you back in there and supplementary and don't even format it whatever <laughs> I don't think that's a recent thing. I think BNNS uh, just doing that for a long time, and yeah, and that's that's the value ranking system. Okay, I think that was the last of the, let's say the, mindsets of the society, and we can go through the list of actual behaviors that emerge as a result of this pressure in research. Right, so obviously we can start with poor study preparation and design. Yeah, like, like I said, it's, you know, it's, first of all, it's, like, like you mentioned, Patrick, it's impossible to verify and reproduce a study if you, if you don't really explain what you did, right? And uh, I know you mentioned that ideally, you know, your, the mistakes of your ways could, should be catched on the stage before you have already conducted the study, the IRB or whatever other institution we might need to create in its place. However, even if it's not the case, we can at least help people or incentivize people to report everything they do the correct way, right? So this is still a point of where change is possible, right, in the review process the reviewer can ask you to be more elaborate about the procedure and you can comply. You can describe it in all the details, right? It's not lost yet. Yeah. yeah. And the register report is a great way. I mean, I think that's what, is that the solution list is one of them. Um, yeah, but yeah, you just send your paper, your methods to the reviewers first before conducting the study and you get a lot of feedback and it has very positive results. And that's how the scientific process should be in my mind. Like, like, to help each other, right? Like scientists are each other to help. Like we are not here to judge each other. I mean, ultimately, that, that's I mean, you're free to do that, but it's not a productive way to move science forward. We have to help each other to make a better study, better methodology, and get more um, credible results. Yeah, and and this including this point is. You know, just poorly thought out design, and like I mentioned in the past, it, the 
the double blind placebo control design is not the panacea it's not gonna fix everything let's let me give you an example let's say you are you know you're feeding people two types of food or whatever snacks and you know whole prepared warm food and you are comparing their you know mental abilities or memory or something and then what can happen is imagine a situation where you hire participants right and you schedule participants to come over and the problem is the kitchen in your institution or something opens around 2 p.m so what will naturally happen the first group the group that the snackers will likely all be scheduled in the morning and then the group who's gonna you know eat the other type of food is all gonna be scheduled in the evening so are we really comparing snacks versus homemade food or are we comparing morning cognition versus evening condition uh, cognition right and this this can be uh, you know that happens a lot and uh, needs to be taken into account and again not fixed by you know the rule of the farm uh, precautions that are normally used but so, yeah, so, so yeah. if if i take that into account right like my day is already really busy like i need to publish as much as i possibly can <laughs> you know what i mean like do I really want to take that into account or, you know, is it better just to get it out there and, you know, add to my CV? I know. Yeah. Who needs that, Patrick? <laughs> I like, uh, I like the way the authors framed this, the way they put it. It was, uh, um, their actual words were, uh, prioritizing appearance over quality, <laughs> which, you know, I think cuts to the core pretty well. Yeah, you're treating you're treating your academic career as almost as a starting YouTuber, right? You are sitting there and thinking, okay, what kind of content is easy to make, fast to make, gonna bring in the views, you know, not gonna bring me any problems, not hard to do. That's that's the reality we have come to, which is really a shame. It's hyperbole, but it kind of reminds me of like Instagram celebrities where it's like the the quality of the picture is not what the life actually looks like you know exactly yeah i mean cool. scientific member is not the fame is not the goal i think that's that, that's why we're talking about this right like the, what's the point of this yeah we we are interested in truth not the fame of the scientists so yeah we should well, forget that this was if i think if this would still be a problem even if we had zero incentives for your career to publish just because uh researchers tend to fall in love in their theories they want them to succeed it's their children in a way right they, they just want to see uh results that they that will benefit their their you know, prediction yeah there's always will be a bias yeah and actually that's a good segue into another point that you there can be a lot of data analysis tweaks that are that can make or break your results right there are a lot of small decisions in every analysis the decisions that are usually omitted in the description well often omitted right so do you and you can change them so maybe you were a little bit short from the significance threshold hmm I wonder if you should delete this participant number 23 and number 46. Their data looks kind of a little slow, you think, colleague? 
And then maybe what we can do is maybe we can only analyze the second half of trials, right? It makes sense, right? Because participants take a while to figure out what the procedure is about. So the first half kind of doesn't count. Okay, let's, let's recalculate the results. Oh, look at that. It's significant. We can publish now. Fantastic. Good job. So that's actually an exaggerated uh, depiction of what really happens. <laughs> it's called p-hacking. It's obnoxious. You can, you can uh, identify it in the field. If you get a set of findings regarding like a certain phenomenon, and you realize that there is unusually large number of results just below this, the threshold of significance, right? Because people were likely to, you know, were likely aiming to get right there. Yeah, and by other issues, like you can just run multiple models in the same data and see what comes out. You can take out the data a different way, and it just comes out sometimes just by chance. Uh, you know, p value just small enough that people say this is a uh, you know significant difference or whatever. Like it's different, but yeah. Um, I mean, I mixed feeling about this, but as long as they are open about it, like I totally did fishing, and this is what i mean that's it's fine but a lot of times that uh, what happens is uh i mean i think that connects to the other issues in uh, this in the article like oh uh this i found this result and this must be that these theories are correct so this is like hypothesis um after the results are no harking so i thought about and published this as as if i thought about this all along and i say my hypothesis was confirmed um and that's totally uh well, there's like we are trying going to like a territory of dishonesty a little bit here. But a lot of times, like these things happen without bad intentions. I have to acknowledge. So, that, so I guess one question I have is: Is there any reputational damage for a researcher that's consistently p hacking? Um, like, are there are there people in certain fields where their results are you know wishy washy and look like it's harking, like? Is there any social consequences for that, even if their publication and citation numbers are increased? <laughs> These days, more so. However, we still have this thing as with the rest of the humanity is if you're rich and influential, you're kind of invincible, right? Should we call names? We should not call names. There is a certain person who is now in Australia <laughs> who has been noticed in, you know, in several of those techniques, and the repercussions are limited it's because he's rich and famous. It's also just a big acquisition, and it's hard to prove. So if you don't witness it, you can't just accuse someone of doing that. The only thing we can do is to try and uh, reproduce results. And if it doesn't work, we can only guess why it happened the way it happened but yeah oftentimes uh researchers whose work was not uh reproduced have some other theories why did that happen so sometimes uh, there is a lot of uh 
kind of critique towards the reproducibility situation and about how uh, the reproducible research, like the, the repro reproduction was done incorrectly. There, there, there were other methods, there were other participants and only the original researcher can actually reproduce their own research. There is also like this point of view even. That's, I think, okay, so like Olga said, it, you have to prove the malicious intent and you kind of can play dumb in many cases. And I think one of the points they uh, mentioned is incomplete reporting. That's another technique that's very important here. Basically means that you can't reproduce my study because I forgot to mention one very important aspect of what I did and you guys are all missing it. And I, I don't even remember anymore, but I did it back then, but now we can't. And it can be a, a, something similar to confound that we have discussed earlier, right? Time of the day, maybe the kitchen, you, you know, things like that. Uh, obviously they have nothing to do with the theory. They just get tagged along. Yeah, but that's, and, and you know, even if you are noticed in more malicious things like selective reporting, so the example they give would be, imagine you are observing people for 18 weeks and we know you're observing them for 18 weeks, but then you publish an article for some reason and you are only reporting data from week four to week 13. What, what's up? What happened? What happened on week, between week one, four and week 13 and 18? And, but even those people, if, if you catch them, they're like, oh, you know, it's no big deal. This data segment just better highlights my ideas or something you know i didn't do it to be malicious or something so the yeah, only go ahead now oh yeah like i just want to say like so malicious intent right like and we talk about malicious intent but we also talk, should talk about lack of training and awareness like people did stuff like crazy stuff before and that they were told to do so before by their advisors or some like something uh you know that's how they're trained to be and how the standards were before and i mean it's easier to you know um say oh these are all bad people <laughs> but i don't I, I like it's easier to go in that direction but i feel like um um considering more context of what were like before and uh, i think i personally feel like uh, talking about what can we do right now like what can we like patrick saying like what are the incentive structures so that people can be held accountable from now on like what can we do about that yeah so, so. so that's a perfect transition because the one sentence which i thought was like uh interesting that the authors ended the article with is rigorous methodology is critical and this needs to be imposed top down without compromise. And so I thought that was just interesting because like, who's the top? You know, who's going to top? It's not like a department chair can say, hey, yeah. all of science, you guys all have to do this. Like who? nature can't do it. You know, like can the NIH do it? You know, who's who's the top? It, yeah, yeah, it's it's a good. Yeah, because all of those uh, all of those things that people are doing again, if if you're asking them to stop doing them, you, you're basically asking them, you need to shoot your career in the leg, right? Everyone else is going to still be doing it because it's technically illegal, but you are better. You are a noble soul. You need to, you know, to redeem science or something. It's up to you and your, your career on this, you know, second year of your PhD program. Good luck with that. But yeah, it needs to, you know, things 
need to start changing coming from from the top right from from the funding agencies they need to and 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 I, it's my sincere belief that it should be a path of reward and reinforcement not punishment you shouldn't punish people for doing bad research because they'll just start hiding it they'll start lying about it right you should incentivize and uh, exemplify great research right so maybe give specific grants only for people who are willing to go the length and you know release all the you know pre-published -pre materials and all, all the data all the you know all the scripts whatever they use to the last letter reward those initiatives make make them great and maybe the, the publishers themselves can maybe start paying the reviewers maybe should create more specific uh positions for like preprints and registered reports even if, if they're not doing it uh in the funding agencies yeah the government itself and and just the just the the society itself like us individual people we don't even if we don't change our behavior we can start translating these ideas into our you know shared social space yeah it's cool and hip to be a slow researcher and publish boring articles with very long method section. Yeah, do it. Do more of it. We love you. So this is where my brain starts to turn in circles because like, I, I think it's easy to blame like tenure committees or hiring committees, right? But at the end of the day, those people just want to have researchers who can bring in more funding for the institution so the institution can continue. Um, if you look at funders like Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and Gates Foundation, they've started to do stuff where they like require whoever receives the funding to share a preprint in order to like help mitigate some of these issues. Um, the one thing that makes absolutely no sense to me is so the majority of funding comes from like the NIH and the NSF, right? And so these are public institutions paid for with tax dollars where like, in theory, we would want to have the most high quality science possible. Like the public doesn't benefit from having like clickbaity science, right? So why does the NIH and NSF not, why is it not a priority for them to make sure that science is better? Cause it seems extremely well known that there's a replication crisis and the issues behind it, like the whole bibliometric thing is like fairly well known as well. So, so why does the NIH and NSF not care? I think that's only my guess that they care, but policy making is a very slow process and very complicated process. So maybe we should just wait for some time until things will come to them and they will do something with that. And probably there is also some kind of like, uh, you know, biomedical bias because usually the, those organizations they fund uh like medical biomedical clinical interventions uh they a lot of them still think that all these issues are about you know psychology about not real science so maybe some of them are still oblivious unfortunately I mean, in, even if they are not, think about it this way, right? Th there is a reason people rely on, you know, quantified indexes of things, right? Because of the sheer volume. Like, it, why does SAT exist? 
it's obviously not the best measure of your, your mental ability. It's just because if you want to hire or accept a person that's among top 100 in the nation, it's going to be easier to just line their top scores in one click as opposed to interviewing you know, thousands of people, right? That's a different story. Same here, right? They they probably, they want to manually read the prep ratings and assess the quality, but then they would have to hire a ton of people who can, you know, have the qualifications to do so. You know, it, it's easier to look at the H, H index of the <laughs> applicant. Yeah, yeah, and we, we, we will have to somehow to overhaul our whole evaluation system. It, it kind of reminds me of what uh, what Nami said, where it's like, you can't totally blame, you know, some researchers for like poor behaviors, because maybe like in their training, you know, that's just what was commonplace. So that's just where they are, right? And like, when you look at the people who are in charge of the NIH and NSF, like, not a lot of early career researchers there you know they were trained like pretty long ago and so like when it comes to like i think more um like agile institutions like czi and gates foundation they can kind of like top down and say hey if we give you this funding you're gonna have to share a preprint how awesome would it be if the nih did the same thing but said we're only going to fund pre-registered studies like that's it you know that pre-registrations would you know be universal immediately but that doesn't happen because I think the people in charge of the NIH and NSF don't value pre-registration because it just, you know, it's kind of like a relatively new phenomenon. So that's, I mean, it's just a hypothesis on my part, but I, I think you're right, Olga, that it'll just be like 50 years from now, <laughs> you know, like we'll probably be there. But yeah, it's, it's just crazy to me that it's not more self-aware and change doesn't happen faster. Well, I, I think it's think about it this way, right? The in a way, the NIH and everyone they are part of the system, and they want you, they want you to succeed as a clickbaity person, right? Because that's they're gonna send report to whoever is auditing them, right? And they they're gonna say, hey, we funded uh, 100 initiatives, and 95 of those came up with a positive result showing that the intuition that they had about the thing that we are funding were, were correct. Look at us. We are good NIH. We are you know, funding research that works. So, and that's interesting that it's like shared honor or responsibility. That's really a bad thing. I, I, know I didn't share the story about PNAS, uh, Proceedings of National Academy of Science, where uh, a person I know published there, and another group of researchers tried to criticize this uh, paper, and they published an entire response in PNAS where they said, hey, you claim that A is greater than B, which is not the case. You're dumb and your methods are dumb. The problem was that the original study never claimed that A was greater than B. They read it wrong. They it claimed that A was greater than C, and they basically they misread the thing. That's the amount of effort they put into it, and they went away and wrote an entire, you know, toxic response to it. Published it in PNAS, and when the original author, rightfully so, reached out to PNAS and said, "Hey, that sounds like a big mistake. Maybe it should be taken down." It's still there. 
still there, not retracted. And uh, basically, an article based on a mistake, right, or mis misreading the material is still there. And that leads us back to the question of how do you identify and punish those people who are using these practices? You don't. You, they, we only we only ostracize actually people who are involved in data manufacturing. And the only reason it happens usually is maybe your grad student, you know, copy paste your, or, or like accidentally sends out your direct instruction to manufacture data to the, to the entire department. Or maybe your colleagues notice that you never leave your uh, room yet still you're seemingly collecting you know hundreds of people every day based on your research history so this kind of stuff is being punished but not being ignorant jerk in public <laughs> that's that's a, you know seemingly okay behavior in 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 certain journals so i think we're just about an hour now so to tie things together i have one last kind of like two part question um they have like table three where they mention all the current initiatives to try and like address some of these issues like uh, pre-registrations and like uh, like stuff like pub peer where you can uh, evaluate someone's peer review contributions, things like that. So like from two perspectives, if I'm a regular citizen who just wants my tax dollars to go to uh, reproducible science, what can I do to try and, you know, help that goal? Like just call my congressman continuously? Like, is there anything I can do? And then two, as a academic or a researcher, what are some of the easiest steps that you can take in order to try and help contribute to this culture of reproducible science? Wow, that's a loaded, loaded question. We can probably start tackling the second part think about the first one the second part I, i'm guessing uh, maybe Olga has the most experience you should probably embrace the pre-registered pre or pre-registered report you know, there are several kinds where you can take your sweet time and do whatever you want and you will still end up with a publication uh, obviously you know it's up to your conscious to avoid practices that are you know obviously not okay what else yeah i guess for for me the only one way to kind of like do something in line with open science was to embrace the idea that you are not going to be a top prolific researcher you may not get into r1 institution with what you are going to do and that's okay. And maybe that's something you don't want to, right? Maybe you don't want to get into R1 institution job by producing uh, just bad quality stuff. So you, you have to decide for yourself what you want from this life and what you want from, the, from your career. And if you want to do something that aligns with the open science values, there is a lot to sacrifice. But there are options. There is uh, pre there is pre-registrations. You can always share materials on OSF and other platforms. 
etc etc you can try to uh, focus on data that is already accessible and already collected you can try to focus on meta-analysis and uh, other ways to you know improve science without just collecting uh, participants and doing I don't know 150 experiments again and again and again just for the sake of doing them so yeah basically just slow down science yeah worst case scenario you won't get a, a you know an academic position but since you spent all this time working on your methodology scales and statistics apparently uh people from uh, you know from health research will hire you as a statistician right that that that's what they want to do that i guess this is where we'll all end up working yeah, that, that's the plan, that uh, eventually someone will embrace your skills and understand its value. And maybe you will find some kind of job that will align with your values and your skills afterwards. Nami, what do you do to be a good researcher? Well, so, well, old guy, research your point, and maybe I repeat that, but... Uh, there's a saying in uh, racing community, uh, I do sim racing. And so when you race, um, slow is smooth. So going slow, the turning a corner, if you go slow, you can turn more smoothly. And as a result, smooth, going smooth, you can go faster, right? So I take that as an approach, like in this kind of slowing down argument. By slowing down, you mean Maybe you're spending more time writing about um, register report proposal to journal. Even you don't, you're not running study, just writing, writing the journal, get the more reviews. Um, but in the end, you'll have better study. And hopefully, right now it's kind of hard, but hopefully, it, you know that high quality study make uh, you faster or more efficient and more open more door for you in the future. So that's how i think about it i think i'm doing a lot of mental gymnastics to think about this because i myself did a registration i did a pressure report um so but i think that's that's at least that's my justification and that's uh, how i feel good about doing my own stuff so i've been thinking about the first half of the question and it's truly a titanic work to make it happen Honestly, I don't think that there are direct ways that you can, as, a, as an average citizen, to fund the science, you know, to, 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 to improve. You can find specific initiatives that you feel like should exist. For example, pub loans, right, that, that are paying reviewers to do their work. However, I would actually suggest that don't search for specific options to help but actively express your position, actively express your opinion in all the social outlets that are available to you about those issues that you know exist in science. Maybe go, if you're listening to this, after we are done, go to Twitter and you know write a tweet about how it's total bullshit that reviewers are not getting paid and it's considered to be a free work in you know in the current state of, of science. It's you know it's not okay needs to be improved needs to be needs to be fixed and it you know it's not okay that, that the journals you know require 
huge fees to um, you know give back uh, materials that are not even theirs to begin with to make them public right you can express the dissatisfaction that the you know the research the you know open available research is not as is not as re rewarded by the granting agencies as a more clickbaity type and i I'm, you might disagree i honestly i'm i don't really see direct ways how you can leverage it other than and in your opinion matters you know people the the granting agencies the people from the government they they, they read twitter they are they use the same social networks as we do there you know you will change their opinion if this is going to be considered you know a perceived consensus like if everyone everyone thinks it's absolutely not acceptable to not pay reviewers the changes will start happening yeah that's a great point and uh, i think there's a lot of power to unleash from the citizen side and more organizing and putting more policies that are consistent with this transparency and thus uh, value more taxpayer money in research uh, i know open science uh, foundation uh, or, or center for open science i think that's the name uh they have a little bit of lobbying efforts um like uh, uh brian nosek talking to i think congress i think they have some hearing on that on that one uh but yeah that was like i'm excited to see that and uh there, there should be more maybe uh like the, those efforts because ultimately in democratic society who who has a power people right so you gotta i think there's a lot to unleash there yeah there are also more and less influential people among citizens. For example, we have uh, the whole genre of uh, scientific journalism, right? So a lot of times journalists don't do a decent job when they pick and choose uh, titles, uh, like flashy titles to write about. So just stop doing that maybe uh, stop talking start talking about how uh, scientists didn't find something instead of always talking about how they did find something uh, start talking about methodology more uh, like ask experts about things not just try to you know uh, write about sex, drugs, and rock and rolls that's happening in the science because oftentimes those are the papers that are have lower quality. Anton, I think you're spot on. I think it's like raising awareness, like for any other social issue. Um, I remember like 18 months ago, there was talk of an executive order to say any publicly funded research paper had to be. Uh, openly published like in an open access journal and so like that's an executive order you know that would make change like immediately didn't end up happening but if there was enough public outcry on twitter and a politician felt like they could gain some like political capital by adopting that type of perspective um i think it would happen pretty quickly so yeah i think you're totally right just you know annoying all your friends about how like funding and science sucks and like getting on the internet and yelling about it, I think would actually probably make a pretty big difference. It, so could, I guess it could be, it could be also the case if 
uh, you know, in today's world, the the good thing is sometimes you can actually find the researchers themselves that are, you know, that work at their own science journalists, right? The, you, if you find the person that's conducting research you're interested in on Twitter and you follow them, you get this first-hand experience of what kind of research they're doing. If you like what they're doing, follow them. I don't know if you can donate them, probably can't. Spread the word, just, you know, be a nice citizen, love, uh, science-loving citizen. That, that is basically it. And we're all citizen-loving scientists, I think. So, cool. I guess, uh, do you guys have any last thoughts before we sign off here? Uh, Center for Open Science to accept donations. So if you have <laughs> extra uh, money that you can donate, uh, consider donating to Center of Open Science. Or do research yourself, so save money. Cool. All right, well, I think that about does it. Thank you, guys. Um, until next week, we'll see everybody later. <laughs>